We, we have to get better at sitting at the table with people we disagree with. Hear me. We have to get better at sitting at the table with people we disagree with. One more time, we have to get better at sitting at the table with people we disagree with. Mark Twain said this, after spending time around good people, I can see why Jesus chose to spend his time around tax collectors and sinners. After spending time around good people, I can see why Jesus said, give me the tax collectors and sinners. I'm a, we, we cannot be so narrow-minded and self-righteous in our ways that we fail to sit at the table with people that we disagree with, even further that we kick them out of our table. We cannot do that. We'll never win. It is the love of Christ that transforms us. It is his kindness that draws us to repentance, not his bullying, not him being a jerk. It is his love that draws. It is his love that transforms us. What do we become by the power of the Holy Spirit? The most gracious, loving, merciful, redemptive community on the face of the planet. Do you agree with me that we should be the most loving, gracious, merciful, redemptive community on the face of the planet? If not, you've got no business following Jesus because that's exactly what he is for you. That's exactly what Jesus is for you. All right, we're, I think we're getting closer to being ready now. Romans 1, 18 through 19 says the wrath of God, stop right there. How many of you know God has wrath? How many of you know God is not just this passive guy who is all love and all willing and all, God's mad about some things. The wrath of God is being revealed. Some things tick him off. Christians being divisive tick him off. Racism ticks him off. These things, there are things that make God mad. We have to understand that, okay? So he says, and then I, I love this. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people, catch this, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it. To them. I love what he says. He says they, they, are, they have gone crazy, and they've gone crazy because they're suppressing the truth with wickedness. I, I mean, a lot of people who have, you know, for whatever reason may it be, uh, have started doubting their faith. And usually you take a pretty good deep dive into decisions that they've been making, and they're not doubting their faith. They're just suppressing the truth with wickedness. I've started sleeping with my girlfriend, and now all of a sudden I don't know if I trust what Jesus says, right? Convenient. Convenient. Talk about suppressing the truth so that you can flourish in wickedness. He's, Paul is saying it's crystal clear. He goes into verse 20, and he says, if you look at all of creation, you experience all that God has done and who he is. We are without excuse. Romans 1.20. In other words, he's saying the truth is there. It's whether or not you're suppressing it. 
It's whether or not you're just shoving it down and allowing yourself. And here's, here's the scary thing with this. We live in a day and age more so now than ever before where you can find a guru to affirm any feeling or belief that you have. You just go on Instagram. You can find a guru to tell you the carnivore diet is the only thing that's going to save you and you got to eat nose to tail and raw liver and other things, right? Like, you got to eat all these things. You, liver king, you know who I'm talking about, right? <laughs> you gotta, and then you can find another person who said that what cured their MS was being a vegetarian, eating nothing but vegetables. and eating all, Like, you can find anyone to affirm any belief you have. The problem is that suppressing the truth. If we have the truth, then I filter everything through the truth. And I filter everything through the word of God, the truth of God that he's given to me. That's what Paul is immediately confronting. He said, there's the wrath of God and you're suppressing the truth. You're not doubting, you're just choosing wrath and wickedness over the things of God. So he continues on, Romans 1, 22 through 25. He says, although they claim to be wise, they become fools. And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Listen to this, verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in their sinful desires and their hearts to sexual impurity for degrading of their bodies with one another. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They literally, that word there is a, is a monetary term. It was a banking term. He said, they have literally made the transaction. They have said, here's the truth, now give me the sin. Here's the truth, now let me do what I want. Here's the truth, now let me live by my truth. Here is, they, they made the transaction, and then he says, verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. Wow. Worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. I remember when I fasted coffee for 30 days. I was the worst husband for 30 days on the face of the planet. I was so angry and frustrated and headaches and annoyed. I'll tell you why I did it, because I found myself saying I can live without anything but coffee. And right when I said I can live without anything but coffee, the Lord said, oh, really? Oh, really? Well, we have a 30-day fast coming up, so guess what you're fasting. And, and the reason I had to do it is because I found myself subconsciously worshiping created things rather than the creator. Do you worship created things rather than the creator? Do you worship your spouse? That's a created person right, rather than the creator and put expectations on them that they don't deserve, nor that they can fulfill. Do you worship, the? do the Texans get more of you than Jesus on Sunday morning? Do they? Are you Frankenstein during worship and then you're like this in front of your TV? Come on, boys, let's play for the number one draft pick. <laughs> let's get it here, guys, right? Like, what, 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 do you, what do you worship? Do you worship created things or do you worship the creator? Are you holding out and saving up for that Chanel bag and not giving unto the Lord? Is, is it just the worship of things and items and stuff rather than the creator? Paul is coming out 
guns blazing with them, and now we go in. If, if you know the book of Romans, uh, you know where we're headed. It's in I-Y-K-Y-K, right? Um, I'll tell you who does know where we're at, all of my gay friends. And you're like, how, how on earth does a pastor have gay friends? I'll tell you how, two things. Number one, really good shoes. <laughs> Gotta have really good shoes. Number two, frequent trips to Starbucks. Like, it just, you can't miss. You got good shoes, you go to, and I know some of you are concerned about my Starbucks consumption, and I will tell you, I've heard your rebuke, and I've pulled it way back, but it's still a ministry opportunity for me, right? So <clears throat> here's where we're at with the book of Romans. One of my gay friends asked me, I talked to all of them on the phone this past week, said, do I need a stiff drink before church? And I said, here's what you need to know. If we're not a better church for you and for everyone after Sunday, I have failed you as a pastor. This is my conviction. If we, I think we become a better church today. Now, and I, I told you, most people know where we're at. Christians don't, but the LGBTQ community does. And the reason why is they know these verses better than most Christians. They have been told them, they have been attacked by them, they have had them shoved down their throat, they've had them texted to them and shared with them and everything else, all throughout their lives. So let me read this, and let me just tell you, I told you at the very beginning, I'm gonna offend everybody, I'll have no friends after this, right? I'm gonna offend everybody all the time, so I'm, I'm, I'm aware of that, let's just do this, stick it out to the end. Stick it out to the end, let the word of God speak. Romans 1, 26 through 32. Paul says, because of this, now remember, let me remind you, and we'll come back to this, he's already talked about heterosexual sexual sin in verse 24, okay? So this is not, I hate when people call this an issue. This is not an issue, this is a people, okay? So here we go, Romans 1, 26 through 32. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. Verse 27, in the same way, the men also abandoned their natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. Verse 29, they have become filled. Now this is a list of, of the, this is the Jewish ethic list. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent new ways of doing evil, and they disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Verse 32, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do these things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Remember what I told you at the very beginning. We have to become comfortable sitting at the table with people we disagree with. We have to become comfortable. Preston Sprinkle, who is the foremost leading theologian on this issue, he is by far the best. He wrote a book called People to Be Loved. He's a PhD. He's brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Everything that's good that's going to come from me, uh, you would find from Preston. Preston says, if we get the Bible right but love wrong, we're still wrong. If we get the Bible right and love 
wrong. We're still wrong. There was a study done on the LGBTQ community's religious background. It's the most comprehensive study ever done of this kind with thousands and thousands of participants. And here is what they discovered. This is so interesting. 83% of people from the LGBTQ community have an evangelical Christian background. I don't doubt it a bit. 83%. 54% have left the church. 54% have left the church. When asked why, this is what caught me off guard. Why, why do you think? Huh, say again? No love. No love? Okay, good. Anyone, anyone else? You're like, I don't know what I want to say right now. Is it warm in here? Right? Here is the first, this is, this is the, n- let, me, let me get it right. Hang on. Let me look at it. Okay. Why did they leave? Only 15% left for theology. Only 15% left and said, they won't affirm my theology, won't change their theology, therefore I can't be a part of this. 85%, 85% of a population of people have left the church for this one reason, relational disconnect. Here's their words. I didn't feel safe. I felt disconnected with the leaders. In other words, the pastors wouldn't acknowledge me or talk to me or or have a relationship with me. There was an incongruence between teaching and practice. They say, come as you are. They say, you're welcome here. They say, welcome home. And then all of the sudden, I become a subsect of the human species when they find out I'm gay. What else did they say? There was an unwillingness to dialogue. I want to tell you this. I am convinced of this. People in the LGBTQ community are not looking for someone to affirm their theology. They're looking for someone to affirm their humanity. They're not looking for someone to affirm their theology. I meet with all of them. Listen to me. Hear it from me, your pastor. I get email after email. Here's how the conversation goes. The conversation goes, I either get a text into the church, a DM to our Instagram, or an email. And the question is, can I meet with you? I I just wanted to have a conversation with you. And I'm always, yes, let's have the conversation. And we sit down, and they ask me, am I allowed to be a part of the church? It's never about theology. It's never about you agree with me or I agree with you. It is always about, am I relationship? Relationally safe here? Am I relationally safe to explore theology and explore Jesus here? There's a girl named Tosh. Oh, wait, wait, back to the survey. So, of the 76% that left, of the church, of those that left the church, 76% said they would come back. Do you hear me? 76%, three out of four said they would come back. When asked why, only 9% said theology. 9%. Less than 1 in 10 said theology. What did the other 91% say? A relationship where they can walk with Jesus in safety and in dialogue to figure this out. They're saying, will you love me long enough? They're saying... uh, We got more work to do here. 
21-year-old lesbian named Tasha said she grew up in the church, now gone from the church, said all I wanted was to feel loved by those in the church I grew up with. Love is giving me time to be with you to figure this out. If you let any church people read this, that's all us, tell them, I don't have to be right to be loved. I just have to be dignified in our disagreements. Preston Sprinkle tells a story of his friend who's a gay man named Tim. And Tim uh, was, has dealt with same-sex attraction since he was a child. And he said, as a child, he was a missionary's kid in Africa, okay? Uh, and he said that he, was, he had his first same-sex attraction when he was seven years old. And he said, as he was growing up with this attraction, he knew the conservative missionary background that he had, the faith group that he came from. If he said one word about it, he would be ostracized, condemned, shamed, and pushed out of that community. So he spent his entire childhood, wrestling with this tension, suppressing it, and trying to figure out what he believed theologically on his own. And so then he, his parents came off the mission field. When they came off the mission field, they moved to San Francisco. You can make a lot of gay friends in San Francisco, right? So he's in San Francisco. He's walking the streets one night, and he sees this adult bookstore. And he walks into the adult bookstore, and he's just, he's reeling in this tension, and a man in there propositions him. And so he agrees, and they go back to the back room, and they sleep together. He comes out, and he looked across the street, and he saw a pawn shop. And he said, the thought that pawn shops sell guns seemed like the only solution for me right now. Listen to Tim's words. He said, as I lay on the sidewalk in front of an adult bookstore, the fact that Mission Street pawn shops sold guns seemed like a solution but I wish, oh, I wish that somehow, rather than ending up in the arms of that anonymous man, I found myself in the loving arms of the church. I wish that in the church I had found myself loved. I'm telling you, I have had well over a hundred conversations about sexuality with the LGBTQ community, and it has never come down to a debate of theology. Never. It always comes down to, can we have a relationship where I can ask you questions, and you can ask me questions, and I can figure out really where I stand theologically, and really what I, I, I think God is trying to do in me, because I live in this Tension. I've had hundreds of these conversations, and every single one of them tells me a background of being called an abomination, being called shameful, being ostracized, being pushed out of the church, all, and more than one of them have had suicidal thoughts because of it. What? Like, how? If we have an entire community saying, will you just love me long enough to figure out what I, and here's the thing that drives me nuts, we do it for everybody else on Paul's list. Did you hear his list? Heterosexual sin, gossip, slander, murders, thieves. We do it for everybody else, but we take this one population of people and we degrade them and shame them to a place of not even feeling safe enough to step through our doors. What are we doing? 
I'll tell you my story. So I know, now you're all like, well, what does he really believe, right? Uh, and I love that. Andy told me a couple weeks ago, he's like, I think the church is always asking themselves, are you a Republican or a Democrat? Like, what are, what are you, right? And I love that because I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, I vote this book, and I don't need to tell you anything else, and I don't need to choose a side or anything else, right? Um, so let me, let me tell you my personal story, and I, I asked their permission to share this. Um, gay guy in our church that I love dearly, uh, started out, same conversation. He asked me to have a meeting, um, and in his meeting, I'm talking the most respectful, kind, literally listen to this. He, he looked at me and he said, um, I'm a gay man. I love the church. I have found a home where I can worship. I've never grown this much spiritually in six months ever. He said, uh, God is moving in me, and, and I just want to ask your permission to get involved. He said, I, I know my story and background. I know that can cause problems for you. Like, I'm like, gosh, how, how messed up have we become if there is someone who's having to say, can I like be a part rather than just anonymous church attendance, right? Can I like actually, you know, be a human in this place? And so he's, he's talking to me and, he's, and I said, yes, of course, you can get involved. And then this is the hardest question I've ever been asked in ministry. Not hard because I didn't know the answer. It was hard because it hurt and it should hurt. He said, I'm, I'm not engaged yet, but there's some plans in place and some things coming together and, and it, I may be in the future. And he said, I think I already know your answer, but I wanna ask you, would you do our wedding? Man, it hurt. And I'll tell you why it hurt. It didn't hurt because I didn't know the answer. It didn't hurt because I didn't know the Bible. It hurt because of love. And I was like, man, I love you guys. And here's what I told him. I said, I am not at a place theologically where I can do your wedding. Not at a place theologically where I can do it. But I'll tell you what I can do. I'll show up when you send me an invitation. And I'll buy you guys a nice gift. Probably some good shoes, right? <laughs> and I'll hug your neck afterwards. Why? Because I'll sit at your table when we disagree. I'll love you beyond our disagreeing. I'll tell you this, I will get one thing right when I stand before God one day. He's not gonna say you didn't love everybody in my name. He's not gonna say you didn't love everybody in my name. And listen, remember what Preston Sprinkle said, if we get the Bible right and love wrong, we're still wrong. If we get the Bible right and love wrong, we've still missed it royally. So um, here is the argument when it comes to sexuality. And, and I, I owe you a sermon on this because uh, we got to get to the rest of the book of Romans. So I'm going to leave you with a bit of a cliffhanger. But here's the argument. The argument is this. In Genesis and Leviticus, a Jewish sexual ethic is introduced. Ask any LGBTQ member. They're going to tell you what that is. They know the words. They know the passages very, very well. Paul is the foremost leading Jewish scholar of the New Testament. Paul is the only New Testament author that writes about same-sex relationships, and he does it three times. He does it in Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, and 1 Timothy 1. And every time he writes about it, it's included in a list. And every time he writes about it, included in this list of all kinds of other things, then he comes back with the grace, mercy, love, and goodness, and cleansing, and faithfulness of Jesus. That is every single time in the New Testament. So here is the question you have to answer. Does Paul affirm his Jewish sexual ethic that he's been taught, Genesis and Leviticus? Does he denounce the Jewish sexual ethic or does he expand it? That's the question. 
You answer that question, you will answer everything that you believe theologically about same-sex relationships. Does he affirm the Jewish sexual ethic? Does he denounce the Jewish sexual ethic? Or does he expand on it? I don't have time to tell you my answer. <laughs> right? You're like, no. no I, I'll tell you this. I don't think he denounces it. Obviously, you, you just heard, I have a traditional view of marriage. I, I don't think he denounces it, but I don't think he affirms it. I think he expands it into the love, the grace, the mercy of Christ. As you will see here, as you will see 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 through 11, as you will see in 1 Timothy 1, you are going to see Paul take this sexual ethic and he is going to lead it into a place of the undeniable grace and mercy and love of Jesus, okay? So that's the question. I owe you a sermon on sexuality and I promise that it's coming because answering that question uh, just is a whole, whole bunch of other questions that come along with that. We will answer those and walk through that as a church, but my heart leading up to that is this, that we would get the Bible right and we'd get love right. That we would get the Bible right and we would get love right. That we would be a community that doesn't have to agree on everything to love somebody that's sitting next to us in our chairs. That we wouldn't have one group of people that think we hate them and can't be a part of church to figure out their theology, right? And I know what's gonna happen and it drives me nuts. We're gonna leave here and someone is invariably gonna say, well, he didn't take a stand. He didn't take a stand. That's like the, the old, yeah, hey, hey, hey. Let, let me tell you something. Taking a stand is not a one-way drubbing and bullying from the pulpit. Taking a stand is sitting at the table with people you disagree with. That's taking a stand. You want to take a stand, become friends with somebody in the LGBTQ community. Have coffee with them. Talk to them about sexuality. Talk to them about theology. Talk to them about what God is doing. Ask them questions. You, they will shock you. They know way more than you think. They know way more than you think about these passages of scripture. That is taking a stand, okay? Back to the apostle Paul. So Paul just read this list, and that list included all of these things, right? And most scholars believe that list was a list that was circulated throughout Judaism, okay? So you hear him read that list in Romans 1. You hear him read it in 1 Corinthians 6. You hear him read it in 1 Timothy 1. There is this list that is uh, what the Jews would just list off. Oh, these people are all sinners, every single one of them. We condemn every single one of them. Paul comes to them as a Jew speaking to the Jews, and he totally flips the tables. He said, hey, let me use your list, okay? Here's the list of all of the people that you think are condemned and going to hell and everything else. Now, let me get to you. Let me talk about you. In other words, Paul says, everybody has a list, right? Paul has a list. The Jews have a list. The Gentiles have a list. The problem is we're focused on everybody else's list and not our own. Listen to Paul. Stick with me here. Romans 2, 1 through 3. So he comes to the Jews. He's like, all right, I just smoked the Gentiles. Now it's time for the Jews. You ready for this? You therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Verse two, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. Verse three, so when you, a mere human being, 
pass judgment on them and yet do the same things. Do you think you will escape God's judgment? In other words, he's saying you are so self-righteous, you are so judgmental, you have this list of everything that is condemned and you fail to look in the mirror. In our house right now, we have what's called, what I call the frickin' police, right? It's Canaan, he's the frickin' police, all right? Excuse me for Christian cussing, you know, it's whatever. Um, but, we, you know, we try to use substitutes, and um, try, Anna, try. We try to use substitutes. And so anyway, Canaan, uh, the other day, he's playing his video game, and something happens, and he literally tomahawk slams his controller and says, I hate this frickin' game. I said, no, sir, that's vinegar in your mouth. You're getting vinegar in your mouth for that. And he was like, no, daddy, give me one more chance. You know, right? I'm like, no, no. So I give him vinegar. Well, a couple days later, I don't even know what happened, but something happened. And I was like, that freaking thing there. And he said, daddy, we don't say freaking. <laughs> I was like, really? Really? And then he asked me, hey, daddy, when, when I said freaking, I got vinegar in my mouth. What did I, I wanted to say, who do you think you are? You're six, I'm paying your rent, I'm feeding your mouth, and the clothes on your back were bought by me, right? But I'm doing the same things. I'm literally doing the exact same things. And if age and income are a qualifier to do something different, then I'm, I'm wrong, right? It's exactly what Paul's saying. He's saying you have this list of people that you're coming at, but you're doing the same things. And listen, he doubles down on them right now. Romans 2, 17 through 24. Did I tell you Romans would wreck you? Did I tell you I'm going to offend all of you? Here he goes. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, teacher, a teacher of children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? You who have this list, do you look at your own? Do you read over your own? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Listen to verse 24. As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Wow, that would be like me saying there is an entire community of people that blaspheme you because you're such self-righteous jerks. Whew. I told you I was gonna offend everybody. Told you I was, I was coming for it, right? He just absolutely comes unglued on them. And he says, you, you, you're, you think you're a light to the blind, a guide for those who are in darkness, a teacher, but yet you're doing the same things. Do we need to stay here for a minute? He's saying, listen, it's pretty quiet in here. He's saying, listen, you who are 
a self-righteous male in a 30-year marriage to a woman, and you're so spiritually self-righteous that when you heard Luke talking about the LGBTQ community, you already started judging in your mind, and you already started pressing their list against their faces, but you've been looking at porn for 25 out of 30 years of your marriage. Do you think that you're off the hook? Like, do you think that for some reason, because your list doesn't look like their list, that you're scot-free. He's saying, you who were listening to me talk about a gay man who wanted to get married to a man, and you were instantly condemning, you were instantly harsh in your mind, you were thinking, I know what I'd say, I know what I'd do, but you're on marriage number four. He's saying, I mean, like, do we really think that this is, here's, here is what he is saying. We are all in the same sinking boat. We are all in the same sinking boat. In fact, there was a study done on the lifestyle habits of Christians versus non-Christians. They took 30 days and they studied the lifestyle activities of Christians and non-Christians and here's what they found. Statistically the same. Literally the exact same. They found that Christians and non-Christians did these 11 things the exact same amount of time. One, gambling. Two, visiting a pornographic website. Three, taking something that didn't belong to them. Saying mean things. Going behind someone's back. Consulting a medium or a psychic. Getting into a physical fight or abusing someone. Saying something that is not true. Using illegal drugs. Getting back at someone for something they did. And drinking alcohol to a level of being legally drunk. They said there was zero statistical difference in Christians and non-Christians in those categories. There was one thing that non-Christians did more than Christians. Recycling. <laughs> if that's not a stereotype, I don't know what is. Like, if that's not, the one thing that they did more than us was recycle. Because we're like, we're leaving this place anyway. Might as well leave my plastic bottles out, right? What in the world? What in the world? Paul says, listen, we are all on the same sinking ship. You Jews thought you had it all figured out because you got a list of people that you love to condemn. Well, let me have a conversation with you. Everything, including this guy right here. So what do we do in the midst of this? What do we do in the middle of this? If you're sitting in here and you still think you're perfect, yeah, man, you ain't listening. Because we are all an absolute mess. Yet Romans 2, 4, right in the middle of Paul's dismantling of the Jews, listen to what he says. You ask me. I'm uncomfortable with this. Well, I, listen, this is messy. Engaging with the LGBTQ community is very messy. I don't even know what to call them half the time. Like, I, I don't. They have pronouns and this, that, and the other. Here's what I tell them. I love you. I'm going to call you the wrong thing, but I love you. I, I want to I be in relationship with you. I want to walk with you. I want to help you explore theology. I want to tell you more about Jesus. We can walk through Old Testament. It, it's messy, but here, listen to what Paul says right in the heart of dismantling the Jews. Romans 2, verse 4. Don't you see how three things, wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient, God is with you? My goodness, don't you see, he's talking to the Jews. He's saying, don't you see how wonderfully kind, 
tolerant and patient God is with you. What on earth are we supposed to be in the middle of this mess? Kind, tolerant, and patient. Can we be kind? I know this really goes against the socio-political narrative right now, right? We are not tolerant for it. You have that, I'll have the Bible, okay? You take that, I'll take scripture. He says, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Does God's kindness to you mean nothing to you? Does God's tolerance of you when you screw it up every single time, does God's tolerance mean nothing to you? Does his patience mean nothing to you? He waited a long time for you to quit being that hard-hearted Baptist that you are, right? <laughs> he waited a long time for you to come out of that. Do you not see that with him? And then listen to what he says. Can't you see? Open our eyes, guys. Can't you see? that his kindness is intended to turn you from sin. What will turn people from sin? Don't you see, it is his kindness that is intended to turn you from sin. Okay, my favorite part. Now we're to the good stuff. Everybody's wrecked, right? Uh, raise your hand if you're wrecked. Look around for liars, right? They're not raising their hand. So everybody's been wrecked at this point. Paul has systematically dismantled the entire group he's preaching to. And then he comes back, Romans chapter 3, verse 1. <laughs> this is really funny. Put yourself into this narrative. Like, literally, imagine getting absolutely destroyed by Paul for being a Jew. And then he says, then what's the advantage of being a Jew? <laughs> Dang. Paul, <laughs> what's the advantage? Is there any value in the ceremony of circumcision? Romans 3, 9 through 10. Here he answers his own question. Well then, should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? Nope, not at all. For we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. Listen to what he says, verse 10. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. There's not one of us in here who can be righteous outside of the grace and mercy of Jesus. There's nobody in here on their own who can be righteous before God. So what do we do? We're on this sinking ship. God's mad. We're all destroyed. Where do we go from here, right? Martin Luther said this is the greatest passage in all of Scripture. I totally agree with him. In fact, Romans 3.24 has become my new favorite verse. In this context, there is nothing better than this right here. This is that verse, you're uh, on a deserted island, you have nothing but a note card and something that you can write on it. This is what you're writing down, okay? Romans 3, 21 through 24, Luther said it's the greatest passage in scripture, but now, man, hallelujah. Does that not feel good? But now, God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. Verse 22, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes no matter who we are. Do you hear him? And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. Verse 23, here you go, in case you missed it, for everyone, shout everyone. everyone. 
for everyone has sinned. We all, shout all, all. we all fall short of God's glorious standard. My favorite verse. And it's so good. So good. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of sins. Let me read it one more time. Let this sink into your spirit. I know it's been an intense morning. I know you're probably offended. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> Romans 3, 24, let this sink in. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. This is the only hope we have. How do we get out of this sinking boat? Jesus freely did it. How do we get out of this drowning? There is no illustration I could share with you that just adequately sums that up, but I'm gonna give it my best shot. My uh, son Zadok, youngest son, he was, this was his second summer, and we have uh, a stock tank pool, highly recommend, by the way, um, <laughs> unless you have the in-ground pool, and then, you know, enjoy yourself, right? Um, but my son, we have, this, we have this stock tank pool, and uh, he, he was tall enough, finally, where he could get into it. So we put this uh, life vest on him, and on the back of it, it has a handle, right? And so we set him in there, and he's like, you know, floating and wobbling, and he, he's smiling, he's loving it, and he starts leaning, and as he's leaning, he's about to, his face is about to fall in the water, I grab that handle, and I, I pull him out right? And then he's, he's still thinking, he's, he's smiling, you know, dad says again, and he does it over and over and over. And about 45 minutes later, I'm worn out and exhausted. I've been chasing around, pulling him up. He starts saying, I swim, I swim. I and then I went to put it, and he's like, eh. he's, he's like fighting to get away from me. He's putting his hands on the side. He wants to be on his own. He, he sees his big brother. He sees his big sister in there just splashing around. He wants to be on his own. And I thought, okay, you're going to learn a lesson, pal. And so he's in there, and he's wobbling around, and then all of a sudden he gets that lean, and all of a sudden the lean keeps going, and he boop, you know, baptized him right there. He just he did it himself. He went under. I grabbed I pulled it back out, and he's, Anna comes running out. She's like, what are you drowning him? I was like, just teaching, just teaching, right? A little education from dad here. You got, you got to throw him in the water if you want him to learn to swim, right? And so um, afterwards, he's, he's horrified of the pool for about a week or two, and then he wants to get in. But the next time he wants to get in, he is desperate for me to hold on to him. He's like, ah, 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 ah. he's sitting, he's got the life vest on. He's like, he's, and I'm like, no, 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 bud, you're good. He's like, nah. It's like, he wouldn't even let me hold the handle. He wanted me to hold his hands. He became so terrified of sinking. Here is the cycle that we should go on. We should go from wanting to swim on our own to realizing we're sinking. And all that we can reach for is the grace of Jesus Christ that is freely reaching down and pulling us out of the sinking boat we're in. Amen?